Research reveals the alarming fact that far too many of our boys and girls are being victimized by sexual abuse. It's our belief that loosened sexual standards and the growing pervasiveness of pornography will only lead to a rise in sexual abuse. And whether you know it or not, the abusers and the abused are living in our midst. Sexual abuse is not benign, it is traumatizing. Consequently, it requires intervention, deep care, and healing. The journey to hope and healing is difficult and long, but it is a journey that can lead to redemption. We'll be talking to a world-class athlete about our own story of abuse and redemption, along with much more on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, once again, welcome everybody to Youth Culture Matters, the podcast from CPYU. I'm Walt Mueller here at CPYU, along with Jason Sochenik. Jason, greetings. Heidi ho happy, good to see you. Happy podcast, right? A happy podcast, yep, indeed. Yep. Hey, we're going to have a great conversation today, Jason and I are, with uh, the guest that we have in the studio with us here. Denise Gator has a story to tell us about uh, growing up with some difficulty in the midst of uh, great achievements and success in athletics and uh, how that's affected her over the years. And it's really a story of uh, hope and healing and redemption that's quite compelling. So if you're a parent or someone who works with kids or a counselor, this will give you some great insight into many of the difficulties that our kids are facing. Uh, We'll get to that in a while. Um, I'll say welcome to Kenton and Chris, Chris Wagner, Kenton Hawk, who are here in the studio with us running everything. How are I'm you guys? All... How are you guys doing? Doing good. Yeah. Kenton? Have Solid. You, have... <laughs> now, you see, this is what's confusing to me. He just pulled a pop culture <laughs> word from like, well, I remember that from the 70s from my my own adolescence. Did you Did you talk like that, Jason? Solid. Well, no, solid was not a part of the vocabulary. That was way back, but, uh, yeah. Rad, rad, tubular. Well, that's right. That's eighties. That's eighties. Yeah. And then you know nineties. So Kenton the millennial legit. says solid, which I don't know whether to be excited about that or scared about that. Scared. Scared. Yeah, <laughs> probably because we we continue, the saga continues of trying to throw names at him from pop culture, iconic names. From pop culture. Granted, you know, 40, 50 years ago, maybe. But he's, you know, we'll say, Kent, have you ever heard of? And then your standard answer is, after a pause, you go. I've heard the name before. Yeah, I've heard the name before. Or I think so. (laughs) That's right. I think so. And then you say solid, which just ruins the whole thing. You know, it puts a crack in the the armor of your ignorance. Maybe. And now we. (laughs) My focus is just not on uh, what you're used to. Okay, all right. So, yeah. so you're a student of like old lingo, right? Awesome, you're hip to the jive. I love it, Ken. Hey, um, do you guys have a question or quiz for us? What do you got today? Sure, we'll follow up our question from the last episode. Um, we, you guys, told us what your favorite subjects in high school were. 
Uh, so now I want to follow up with that on what was the class that you received the lowest grade on in high school? Oh, man, that's easy for me. <clears throat> well, what is it? What is it? My what senior it? year in high school, math. And math? I think it was math. Yeah, I think it was uh, like I'm not a math guy. Really, really bad at math. I still have dreams. I have nightmares about math class in high school. And uh, the nightmares are brutal. Um, I have to take my yeah. final to, to graduate in math. I think it was calculus and trigonometry. It was a combination class. And uh, I was in with these guys who were brilliant. I don't know how I got put in this class. It was terrifying to me. And so I still have these <laughs> nightmares that I have to take this final. And I'm walking to the final. I realize, oh, my, oh my goodness, I don't have a pencil. And so I go well, to I my. I thought you were going to say you don't have your clothes on. Yeah, well, that, that's that happened too. But I, yeah. yeah. And I, so I go back to my locker to get the pencil, and I can't remember my combination. And time's just ticking, and I see my life pass before me because I'm going to be in high school forever. And then I wake up. And then I go and have the dream again, you know, two months later. It's horrible. <laughs> I've had it recurring. Are you doing calculations as. <laughs> You're trying to get in. You're like, well, here's if the I thing. If I don't get this, then I'm not in five years. I'm not going to be able to. Is that what's happening? Here's the there? thing. Here's the thing. I flunked. I I got it. Well, we got we got E's. So we had A B C D E. I don't know why we didn't have F. Um, but we had A B C D E. I got an E in math the last quarter, the last marking period, my Wait, senior year. I have never heard of this. You got an E. Yeah, like, an, an E in e math. E was an e, uh, was equivalent to an F. Yeah. Yeah. Because think about I'd it. Why do really most... interested in why we went from E to F? Well, That's... E follows D. You may have to consult your your yeah, grammar textbook. I, I understand. Wow. E follows D, you but for... you know we go it's A B C like D. I don't have a we go A B C D, the and then we, we skip the E and go to the F, and probably because F means what fail. But fail. we did E. So so um, so here's how it worked. You know, I, I had never failed a class in high school. Came close, never failed. So the day of my grad, high school graduation, I, I drove to the graduation because we had to go back to the school, turn in our caps and gowns. And when we turned in our caps and gowns, we would get our report card, our final report card. We hadn't seen it. So I have diploma in hand, and I have to run down and get my report card, turn the cap and gown in, and then I'm going to drive home where my entire family and friends, they're waiting for the graduation party. And I get my report card, and I look at it, and my heart just sinks because there for the last quarter is an E. However, I passed a course for the year because, if I remember right, three Ds and an E average to a D <laughs> minus, so you pass. And um, I drove home, and I can still remember – Pulling into the driveway with the window down in the car, my dad was sitting in one of those webbed lawn chairs on the patio entertaining everybody. You know, there's food everywhere. I pull in, and my dad, I think he yelled something like, hey, it's the graduate, happy graduation. And I held up my little report card, computer generated, I think, you know, it was printed out between my two fingers before I get out of the car. And I look over, and I go, hey, I flunked math. And it doesn't matter. You can't do anything about it. He got this look on his face like, my son flunked math. You're going to, you know. And then all of a sudden he realized, well, it doesn't matter. I graduated. <laughs> On to the next next part of my life. And, yeah, math. I'll tell you, hands down, math. Wow. Boom. 
you no hey, argument there. If you're still bad at math, Kenton and I would like to talk to you about raises later on today. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, yeah, because I can make that work in either direction. <laughs> right? Wow. That's true. Yeah, wow. yeah, it could go That's in either quick. direction. I like that. Yeah, I like yeah. that. I do know subtraction. Wow. <laughs> wow. I do know subtraction. You know, I, I have to think about this. I, honestly, it'd probably be math. I, I uh, yeah. Math I would have thought never my subject. really. Oh, what, what would you, you well what would you have guessed for me what would you have guessed for me i i don't know i, I well I, I wanted to say pe just to be <laughs> oh yeah that's but, funny yeah yeah but <laughs> well that goes along with what um, i thought for you but i was dead serious i thought it'd be speech <laughs> it could be yeah you never know <laughs> you know it's interesting <laughs> i got a communications degree but i don't always feel like i i do a good job at it yeah but uh Kenton, Kenton, worst high school subject? Uh, Probably history. History? Okay. Which maybe that explains some things. Yeah, that probably does. Pop culture history, yeah. Yeah, Did you like math? I loved math. Yeah, okay. Math and science were fun. Oh, sicko. English wasn't bad. Doesn't show in my writing, but it wasn't bad. Yeah. Chris, I know it wasn't math for you because no. you went to college to be a statistics major. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, uh, I only got one C in high school. Um, and that really? was. Really? That was your best grade the whole time <laughs> yeah. through high school? <laughs> I am. That's one way to think of it. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, and, See, uh, I know what you're doing here. This is a brag. No. And I had to level you out there. No, that's fair. Yeah. No, I. <laughs> My my only C was in ninth grade. It was just once one of the nine week marking periods is in ninth grade biology. Okay, mm-hmm. ninth grade biology. Science in science in general, I did okay with biology. Uh, was not a good huh. subject hmm. for me. Was there whether was there any dissections taking place in ninth grade biology? Uh, I think the teacher had her uh, knee in a jar. Um, what? Her, what? She had her knee replaced, and I'm pretty sure she kept the the old one in a jar. But that was about the only dissection of any kind that I remember. I'm speechless so, okay. right Chris, now. I, I, no, I, ha- I have a question for you because I, I remember this in ninth grade. There were some weird things in jars, but I do remember the one thing that our I think it was our biology teacher. It might have been like health and fitness, but I remember there was a Big Mac and fries that had sat in a jar and we were in the third or fourth year of that being in that jar and it looked exactly like the Big Mac and fries my friends would get or I would get at lunch. How about hmm. that? Oh, I've heard about things like this. Uh, that's a Oh, yeah. It had no mold. It looked exactly like the day you bought it. It was and I can't to this day. I can't eat a burger from McDonald's and I I can't. I love the smell of the fries, but I just can't eat it anymore. Hmm. When fries look that good, four years later, there is something in that that I should not be eating. <laughs> wow. Hmm. Yeah. Well, school. Boy, I'm glad that's over. Yeah. I am just glad that's over. Here, here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for many reasons in my case, but yeah, I'm glad it's over. That was a good question. I like that question. Hmm. All right. I like it. Good. Well, hey, Jason, let's talk a little bit about uh, what's happening in the world and youth culture trends. Uh, We call this our two-minute drill. You guys have the bell? Yes, indeed. Where is it? Oh, yeah, there it is. So when we hear that, time's up. Two minutes per story. Here we go. 
that sometimes is in my nightmares. Okay. Why don't you begin, Jason? Well, here we, here we, here we go. Gun violence. Uh, one of the things that we have seen in, in the news lately is uh, just a well. There's actually a study that actually pointed to the fact that gun violence continues to be on the rise, uh, specifically in PG-13 movies. Um, in fact, it's exceeded rated R movies over the last several decades. Uh, since 1985, it's it's uh, actually doubled uh, in its presence, and specifically in movies that are rated PG-13. And if you remember, uh, we used to have, just have PG all rated R, and then we went to, to PG-13 because of some of the, the content, and they wanted it to be uh, available uh, to those that are older, not younger. Um, and PG-13 is actually one of the largest groups with, where movies are um, uh, marketed. Uh, a lot of superhero movies come in there, uh, movies uh, like Mission Impossible, Star Wars, the Divergent series, even some of the Twilight movies. Um, all of these kind of fit into this genre uh, or this, this group of PG-13 movies. And what they're finding is that uh, many of these movies have high rates of gun violence. And what, what they're showing through other studies is that it can actually lead to aggression uh, and sometimes even violent behavior. And I just, I, I point this out for one very specific purpose. We just need to remember that the media is a powerful teacher, that what we see can actually have an impact on us. It can impact the way that we act, the way that we respond. Studies have shown that it can actually move to aggressive behavior. Does it always lend itself to violent behavior? Uh, the data is still out on that, but um, uh, at the very least, we do know that it's leading, lending itself to aggression. And so we need to be aware of that. We need to understand that, that it does have an influence on the way that we act and the way we respond. Um, and then I, I also say this because I think that as parents and as youth workers, we need to be aware of resources that can speak intelligently into what we're seeing and what we're hearing and even prepare us before uh, seeing a movie. Uh, and uh, one of the great resources we've talked about here is Common Sense Media. And then I would also just even suggest um, uh, some of the 3D uh, articles and then responses that we give to movies and to music on the CPYU website. Good. Well, you mentioned Common Sense Media. That's a great segue because, boy, we depend on them a lot. They've, they've been producing some great things and some great resources for parents and youth workers on media and media trends. And Sierra Felucci, who writes for them, recently did some research on uh, pictures, you know, the, the images of men and women that our kids are bombarded with that always look perfect. You know, when you see the magazine cover, when you're walking through the checkout aisle, kids are seeing thousands upon thousands of these images at a time when they're all about, you know, discovering their identity, shaping their worldview. Kids are very impressionable. And these perfect pictures that are Photoshopped, that don't show any acne, they don't show any cellulite in the legs, it lengthens their legs, their waists are slim, the wrinkles are erased. These pictures, thanks to uh, photo editing that's out there that we can now do on our smartphones and, and on our laptops and our tablets, these are shaping not only the way kids look at themselves, but the way that they uh, project themselves through photographs and selfies on the internet and on social networking. So the, the studies are now revealing that um, looking at the magazines and looking at the images of supermodels, these perfect people who are, they're not really perfect, but uh, portrayed that way, it has a negative effect 
on the self-esteem of women and girls. And it's not just the supermodels. Even those curated pictures of your friends on Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook that are way too perfect, uh, thanks to flattering filters and selfie-editing tools, these are influencing us in negative ways. So, hey, there's good news. Some of the celebrities are speaking out against this and starting to portray themselves more realistically because they know this is feeding disordered eating and depression and anxiety and a waste of time as we spend so much time with this. But what they've said, parents, do a reality check, uh, talk to your kids, show models and examples of celebrities where when you see them with and without makeup or before and after photoshopping, you say, okay, I get it. This is not who they really are. Play the game, spot the photoshop. Or do you see an ad that's been retouched? And then finally, connect the dots. You know, look at how these crazy images that are just fabricated are marketing certain products and and talk about how these things are being used to manipulate us. So just be aware of this. It's affecting us and it's affecting our kids. Well, the other thing that I, uh, thinking of celebrity and, and some of its influence, uh, I don't know if you've heard recently, but uh, Russell Wilson and Sierra uh, got married. And one of the decisions that they had made was actually to wait. And uh, uh, there was actually an article on this. I know that it was in USA Today, and then it was reported in several other news outlets, uh, specifically based upon an article that she had done in Cosmopolitan, I think in Australia. But one of the things that I, I, I just really thought uh, was interesting about this, and this happens a lot, is uh, a lot of uh, uh, Christians, we grab a hold or we gravitate towards stories like Russell Wilson and Sierra choosing to wait. And I, and I just, I always want to throw caution to the fact that we uh, can sometimes celebrate the celebrity rather than the, the words um, or, or the reasons for their choice. And I just want to be very careful with the fact, because I've seen this happen with a lot, because if we're celebrating the individual more than we're celebrating uh, the choice or some of the things that they say, what happens if they make a different decision later on down the road, right? And so I, I, um, I want to encourage the decision that they made. I think it was a great decision, but I want us to focus more on the words rather than the, the celebrity. Something that Sierra had actually said was, um, I really believe that when you focus on a friendship, you have the opportunity to build a strong foundation for a relationship. And she's talking in reference to her decision to wait and building a friendship uh, and not allowing the physical to get involved. Um, and once you know you're really great friends and what we call equally yoked, uh, it's where we share same values and same outlook in life. It just it changes the paradigm. It allows for the relationship to be in a totally different sphere. So I, I think that's really important that we can focus on some of these things that are said and focus uh, on the words celebrating what, what led them to make that decision rather than just celebrating them as individuals that have made this choice. Mm, mm. Because as we all know, we make mistakes. Yeah. And the other thing I love about this is it wasn't Sierra that led the charge on this. It was Russell Wilson. And typically around issues of abstinence, it's not the male that is the one that's leading the charge. And I, I do think that these are the things that we can point out, not just pointing to the celebrity, pointing to the reasons why. Oh, another segue, Russell Wilson and sports. Of course, you are a Seahawks fan, right? Are you a Seahawks fan? I'm a Bears fan. Oh, that's right. Chicago's everything. Distant yeah. second is the, the Seahawks. Yeah. I do enjoy the Seahawks, but Bears well, first, Chicago. Well, let's talk about sports, and let's talk specifically yes. about youth sports. I bring that up a lot. We caution about injury. Certainly a lot of work's being done now on concussions in kids and youth football and other high-impact sports. But let's talk in general about youth sports specialization. And 
some new research from the Sports and Fitness Industry Association's annual report on athletic participation, which was released in December of last year, says that in 2015, more than 28 and a half million children ages 6 to 17 played a team sport. That was in 2015, and that's up nearly 3 million from 2013 and up 2 million from 2014. However, the difference now is that the average number of sports played by those kids is dropping from just a little, well, 2.09 sports on average in 2013 to 2.01 in 2014 to 1.89. Now it's under 2 in 2015. And the peak age for participation, according to the survey, is age 12. Well, what's happening? Uh, You've got kids playing fewer sports. So, you know, your son, my son, my, my daughter, your daughter, they're not playing as many sports as they used to. They're specializing more often than not in one sport now. That's the trend. And so we have to watch this. I think we, we need to be concerned ask why and what is the result of that. We know that 70% of kids burn out and uh, drop out of youth sports by the age of 13. I wonder if specialization is burning them out, that there's not enough variety and that they're spending way too much time and feeling way too much pressure on that one sport. Speaking of pressure, vicarious living. You've got parents who want their kids to excel, and so they push them into one sport. This is not every parent, but they push them into one sport, and the kids burn out because their parents are living vicariously through them. And who wants that? My parents' value and worth shouldn't be based on how well or how bad I do in the sport. Um, I think there's some narrowness involved. It's more about high achievement rather than well-rounded fun and enjoying it. And, and I'm just going to say this. Kudos to the coaches who are pushing for multiple sports because many coaches are saying, hey, look, you're playing football. That's it. I, my son's high school football coach, years ago, I loved the way he just pushed multiple sports. And, look, you know, football playoffs, we just went through all that. Um, highly publicized Chris Hogan, you know, the receiver for the Patriots who was getting all kinds yeah. of press. One year of college football at a small college after three years of playing college lacrosse at Penn State. And I always remember, you know, I've heard enough because my boys were lacrosse players, uh, one of them in college, the coach is saying, I love getting football players to play lacrosse. So there's a promotion for multiple sports as well. Let your kids have fun. Let them be well-rounded. You know, specialization isn't always the best thing. And just because they start early in one particular sport does not necessarily give them any advantage in the long term. And that's no. also been, been seen and shown. In fact, the Mannings started playing football not until late into their teen years, yeah. which is uh, something that, that a lot of times is, is lost. Well, transitioning just a little bit uh, to the idea of uh, millennials, and specifically here in Spokane, I don't often get to report on things that are happening here in Spokane. I just don't know if we have as much interesting news, but there, uh, there is something that our sheriff's office is starting to do with regards to those that they're hiring that are a little bit younger, and and it revolves around the way in which they engage, have face-to-face contact, because one of the things that they're finding um, when they hire younger individuals is uh, an inability to really have good contact, good face-to-face, and so they've had to move to a place where they. Uh, actually send their recruits out into malls and talk to people that are just in the mall about what they're just buying, what they're doing. Because of a lack of social skills. Yes, yeah. because they've spent so much time on social media. And the article itself, the, the, the when I first heard this, referred to millennials. 
And I would actually argue that it's not just a millennial issue. This is a, an issue that we're seeing across the generations because of the influence and the way in which we engage social media. And, and, and I think it's not just with uh, law enforcement. I think I, 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 the question I had when I heard this and as I engaged with this is, um, is this an issue that's happening across the spectrum with all sorts of uh, career choices? Is this something that really is starting, uh, needing to be happening because it's, uh, uh, well, social media draws us into a space that's by ourself, which does not have face-to-face uh, -face communication. Mm. And, I, and I really loved that they were taking the effort, the time to do this. And, and this is my only thing I would say to this. Is I think that we got to be aware of how much time we're spending on social media. All of this draws me back to the fact that, and we talk about this all the time, social media is a great thing. It's a place where we can actually glorify God, but we can also do uh, a disglory or we can do great harm to the way that we both engage the world, the way we engage our faith, and the way we engage one another. Having community, finding community, finding time to get off social media and have face-to-face -face interaction is really important. And it helps not just with... Um, friendships it also even helps in the workplace yeah hey you know that quote i i use all the time from the uh, uh media critic marshall McLuhan. he, he said yeah. years ago first we shape our tools then our tools shape us and this is a great example of how it's doing i you know we could use the word misshape well let, let me yeah. share one last little bit of research here and we talk a lot about alcohol and drugs certainly in today's world Great concern about opioid addiction and, and how we get to this point. You know, the heroin problem is huge in our culture. It just seems like everywhere I travel, the television is talking about that. But we, we can't, in, in the midst of that, we can't fail to think about the other drugs and alcohol and how that affects our kids and their developing brains. Some new research from the University of Eastern Finland is saying that heavy alcohol use in teenagers causes significant alterations in both electrical and chemical neurotransmission among those who were involved in this study. These were 13 to 18-year-olds who were in the study at the onset of the study. And what they found is that long-term heavy use of alcohol during adolescence, when your brain is developing, when your brain is growing, when it's doing things that God's ordained it to do just to be formed into a healthy brain for adulthood, it is altering, the long-term heavy use of alcohol is altering what's called cortical excitability. If you don't know what that term means, and I didn't, I had to look it up, that's actually can be translated brain activity. So it alters our brain activity and then functional connectivity in the brain. So it, basically what they're saying is this is not good for the brain, and they're discovering this now and, and uh, trumpeting this. And I think this is another reason why we need to be talking to our kids about the dangers of drugs and alcohol. Long term, what does it set them up for? Well, they look ahead and they're saying, hey, this plays a role in anxiety, in depression, and several other neurological disorders. And certainly these things are moving up and on the rise and off the charts in the teenage population. So we need to be careful with this. Their conclusion, for young people whose brain is still developing, heavy alcohol use is especially detrimental, more detrimental than previously thought. So folks, these stories, these what we've just shared with you as we always do, we do this for one reason, that's to make you aware so you can begin to respond in ways that promote kingdom of God living and human flourishing, um, as opposed to seeing our world and our kids continue to decline. So 
take these things, talk about them, act on them, share them with other parents, and, and you know, all for the purpose of getting to see our kids flourish, get through their adolescent years while they flourish to God's glory. Well, we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to have a conversation with an, uh, a new friend of ours. Her name is uh, Denise Gator. She has a compelling story, and it's a story you'll want to hear. Uh, stay with us. We'll be right back for more on Youth Culture Matters. Here at CPYU, we're taking steps to help parents, youth workers, educators, and anyone else who cares about kids help the kids they know and love navigate the difficult issues of life. We've put together a one-day training seminar called Tackling the Tough Stuff that we can bring to your community. Over the course of the day, Marth Penner and I will provide information and practical steps you can take to address narcissism, pornography, self-injury, depression, suicide, and a variety of other tough issues kids face in today's world. To learn more about bringing Tackling the Tough Stuff to your church or community, go to cpyu.org backslash toughstuff or call us at 1-800-807-CPYU. Well, welcome back, everybody, to this episode of Youth Culture Matters. Jason, I am pretty excited about the conversation we're going to have today because I know you and I both uh, love stories, and we love stories of people, stories that make a turn for the better, stories where the narrative that the culture tries to throw at us is suddenly shifted by uh, the miraculous, wonderful narrative of God's story and redemption. And we hear far too many stories, we talk about far too many stories on here that are stories of brokenness that uh, we pray for redemption, but this one we're going to hear today is about brokenness and redemption that comes through Christ. So uh, this will be a good conversation, and we're going to talk about some issues that, that matter that youth workers and parents need, uh, need to be aware of. So uh, we're welcoming Denise Gator. Lisa and I have uh, gotten to know uh, just a little bit over the last few months through a mutual friend, Denise and her husband, David. Uh, Denise, by training is an exercise physiologist and a strength coach, uh, which means that probably every one of us in this room right now could make great use of her services. <laughs> <laughs> Desperately needed, huh? And then uh, also, and this is kind of interesting, this is gonna play into her story, uh, rather fascinating. She's also a diving coach. Um, so she'll talk a little bit about that. So Denise, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for being here. So. Uh, and, and we just found out that um, both you and Jason went to the <laughs> University of Arizona, which is kind of funny. And as we were chatting beforehand, you both, what, what was it, Jason? What was the street? We lived, we lived right off of Speedway. Okay. And, uh, and good and old Euclid. Tucson, Let's say Arizona. Euclid, yeah. In Euclid. <laughs> yeah. So, and I jokingly yeah. say, well, isn't it going to be funny if you're in the same house? So we may still find that out. Who knows? <laughs> uh, different times, same house. But Denise, thanks for thanks for being here. T tell us just a little bit of um, your background because I I found that fascinating. Just some of your <laughs> some of your achievements, the giftedness mm. God's given to you over the course of your life. That's um, you know part of this story. Yes. Well, I grew up in a very active family. Um, my dad did not like us watching TV on Saturday morning, so he took us to the Y, and we. We're involved in all kinds of sports, um, swimming, diving, gymnastics, ballet, 
those kinds of sports, and we loved them. Uh, so I was especially, um, I guess, good at the gymnastics and diving, and I had the coaches kind of pulling at me. <laughs> I needed to make a decision by age 13 or they were going to pull me apart. So um, I specialized more in diving, and my sister, uh, my well anyway I've, I'm one of five uh, children and um, we each kind of specialized in something different so diving was a big part of my life growing up um, gymnastics first and then I started diving at about age nine and it ended up getting a full ride to University of Texas which was one of the top schools to go to for swimming or diving and had a fabulous coach and um, I did suffer through some physical disability and injuries along the way that were very difficult to um, work through because diving was everything in my life it was my God I didn't believe in Jesus at that time and so when I had an injury it was pretty devastating to me to have to stop because I wanted to go away to college and make the Olympic team, you know, those were my dreams. And um, so he worked, God worked in and out of my life through physical injury, I think. The hardest times were when he worked, uh, there was the deepest spiritual work that went on um, from coming to know him, to uh, beginning to follow him, to him eventually healing me. So um, I dove in college and yeah, I did, win the Nash, the collegiate nationals which is now NCAA's. So when you say when you say you know like every little kid you talk to says when I grow up I want to be in the Olympics or I oh, want to be a professional yes. baseball player. This was a reality it for was you. My you dream. were very close to this. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it was realistic. It was within reach. Yeah, but 13 I won the age group nationals and world championships. 14 same thing. And then I had uh, got chondromalacia in my knees and had to quit diving. And so my, I thought I'd lost my dream. And yet during that time that I was away for a year and a half, couldn't do anything, walking up steps was very painful. Um, I got pretty depressed. Uh, that was, you know, there were other things. How old are you now? I'm at 15. Yeah. I had to stop diving, and I was depressed because of that. Also was depressed because my coach had sexually abused me from age 9 through 15. So that was all hidden, and there was a lot of shame in my heart, and I was very empty and um, withdrawn at that point. So uh, anyway, um, I'm getting ahead of myself, I think. Well, let me ask you a question about that, because one of the things we talk about here, this is just an aside, is... Um, that, you know, like right now, anxiety and depression are the number one and two healthcare concerns yeah. on the university campus. Yeah. And a lot of what is behind that is the pressure to achieve, uh, the busyness that we have. And it sounds like in your life then, um, you had, and this was when, this was in the 1980s? Yeah, 80, was, 85, I was 15, yeah. so, um, so. So in the 80s, you're feeling the pressure Absolutely. Uh, you're getting, were, were you, did you feel you were being pushed? Not, you know, I, my parents didn't really push me, although I was in a family of high achievers, very high achievers. 
and I did kind of get a lot of um, attention. It was like a performance-oriented love almost. That's how I felt affection and attention was when I did well. Mm. And my, my sisters were also extremely athletic, but they were like valedictorian in grades. Grades, they were, they were so smart. And I wasn't as good at school. I got B's, A's and B's, you know. That was subpar in my family at that point. But I did excel in sports. And so I kind of, uh, that was a huge part of my life. And uh, I wanted to be the best, you know, the best that I could be. And the coaches were also building that up as a dream and a hope. And they definitely pushed me. (laughs) So uh, I worked hard. And then you add to that the layer of what you mentioned of sexual abuse from a young age. Where it's, you know, obviously every every person I've talked to with this, extremely difficult to sort out. Then you mentioned shame as well. Oh, my gosh. So you're carrying that. Well, and he was a, he became a very close, trusted friend of our family. And I traveled with him to meets all the time. Mm. So he had complete control of me, really. And I was with him a lot. Yeah. So, um I never even knew, the sad part, I still have sadness, never even knew that telling my parents was an option. How sad is that? Yeah. You know, so. Um, can you can you just unpack that a little bit? Because, you know, we've had Diane Langberg on here to talk about uh, trauma, and uh, which is what you were experiencing, and the trauma that comes from sexual abuse, and the inability of young people to talk to tell older people what's happening if we haven't been through it, we don't get that yeah. you know and you scratch your head and you well why not hey, what it was not talked about <laughs> and i in some ways i think it was my generate or my parents <laughs> generation um anything sexual was hush hush you know um it was it almost seemed shameful to talk about it it just was not talked about um and my parents, I love them. They're they're amazing. I don't blame them, but they didn't ask me questions. Yeah. And because there were five children, my mom couldn't come to everything. Um, they had, you know. So the the coach was pretty much the chaperone of all the kids. A lot of times, he would just pile in his truck and go. And so it would have been nice to have, you know, a parent or two involved as well to set up rooms and those kinds of things. But there was no accountability, no questioning. Um, and he was very deceptive and very good at it. So, Which is a story we hear all the time. Oh, yeah. Very good at grooming, very good oh, at... Oh, yeah. 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 And so, you know, we had our little secret, and he... Um, anyway. Yeah. I was sort of like teacher's pet. Yeah. So there was part of that that I enjoyed the extra attention. Uh, feels weird to talk about it now like that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, at first, and half the, the first couple of years, I didn't even know hardly what was going on. And then as I found out more and more, the darker it got. Yeah. And I became very emotional, a lot of um, stomach aches from stress. Um, and my parents thought it was sports, mostly the stress of competing and that sort of thing, probably. 
So uh, I bit my nails constantly, picked at them. So I had some signs of high stress in my life, but you know, I was healthy. I was doing well in school and sports. And so I was a pretty normal looking yeah. kid. Um, well, let me ask you one more question because because we do want to move on mm-hmm. to you know hearing about the healing. That's the that's the great side of this, yeah. the great part of the story. But just what you said there about um, nobody asked me questions. My parents didn't ask me questions. Yeah. In hindsight, now as an adult who's had to process this, is there is there some advice you could give to parents that would? I I probably went overboard with my daughters. I have two daughters, and I wanted them to know what was appropriate. And even when they were very little and I'd bathe them together, you know, as, as, uh, oh gosh, preschool kids perhaps, and I would tell them that no one was allowed to touch them where their swimming suit is. Mm -hmm. You know, anything under their swimming suit is off limits unless it's, you know, something's wrong and a doctor's looking at them or, um, you know, if we needed to talk about something there. That was a private part that was, um, you know, that no one was really allowed to touch that wasn't a parent or a doctor. And so we would talk about that and they're like, okay. And so I also... Um, said, if anyone tries to touch you in those places, you need to tell me. And I tried to have a relationship with my girls that was open enough that they would come to me and said, well, this boy tried this. And that did happen once, you know, with one of my daughters. And it was, the boy didn't even know what he was doing. It was pretty much tickling just in an inappropriate place. And, but, you know, he needed to know that was not acceptable. And so, um, as embarrassing as it was, you know, I, I went and we needed to talk to that parent and the boy and just, you know, let him know that wasn't appropriate. Mm. So it, that's, I just, that's really great to hear. I, I think one of the things that we often talk about, Walt and I do, is, is the parent becoming the authority, yeah. being the source for information, essentially being Google when it comes to these, these issues. And so you being able to, to say those things is something that we – uh, often speak to parents about about being able to have open lines of communication so that these things are prevented uh, yeah. because of the communication that takes place. That's excellent. Well, yeah. things I'm start curious. so early yeah. these days, you know, that I yeah. think um, I started talking about those things when they were very young. So it wasn't as yeah. weird when we got into the puberty days. Well, that's good advice right there. Yeah. You know, that that's, is, really that's gold, really, because... Yeah. You know, parents are scared to talk about these things. And I think, as you said, part of it is that we never, you know, right. as parents, nobody ever talked to us yeah. um, in healthy ways. But now the culture is talking to kids yes. about sexuality from birth. Yeah. And yeah. Um, unfortunately, they're being our, our boys and our girls, I think, are being nurtured now by what they see and hear. That's just, um, you know, just these far out, horribly immoral uh, examples of God's good gift of sexuality that's nurturing them into living it out in ways that are destructive to themselves and yeah. to others. So yeah. you're right. I mean, this is your story. It, just that part so far is is far more common than we, we know or imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do have a question around, because you said 9 to 15. And so I'm actually, I, I, I want to move us a little bit to 
some of the healing, but I'm, I'm curious what ultimately led at 15 to it for it to, to stop. Was it you sharing or was it the injury that you mentioned earlier? Um, it actually, I looking back, I think it was God's deliverance, but I did develop uh, chondromalacia really badly in both what, what knees. What is that, by the way? Cause it's I'm... the softening of the cartilage okay. under the kneecap. And it becomes, instead of being hard and firm, it's soft and bumpy. And my knees were swollen all the time. It was very painful. And they really had no cure for it. It was like ice them and take aspirin <laughs> and wrap them. Wow. And uh, wow. there was nothing they could do for me back then. Nowadays, I think they do have more they can help um, people with in that area. But back then, there was nothing they could do. Yeah. And some people have it their whole lives, and some people, um, it eventually, they, uh, it goes away. But mine was very dramatic in coming and very dramatic in going. And so within a week's time, I was training um, super hard at the top of my game in diving <laughs> and winning age group and nationals and world championships. And the next week, I could hardly walk up steps. So it was a dramatic thing that made me quit diving and ultimately delivered me from my abuser. So it was bittersweet. I was glad to be out of that situation, clearly. But I also had lost a huge amount as far as what I loved to do and my life dream of, you know, going away to college and you know, training for the Olympic team and that sort of thing. So it was very bittersweet, and I didn't know what to do with it. But but in hindsight, you would I, I hear you saying that was clearly God's hand to Absolutely. deliver you. Romans eight twenty eight. Yeah. You know, here here you have a moment where things are really dark and bad, but God's using it for great good. Yes, and during that time, um, my oldest sister had gone away to Young Life camp and accepted Jesus and came back ready to evangelize the world, uh, I thought she had lost it completely. I thought she'd gone off the deep end, but it was a genuine conversion. And she started becoming a Young Life leader, and pretty soon Club was at our house. And here my parents were not even believers, but they wanted to know what she was getting into. And so we had Club at our house, and... Um, it was it was fun, you know, the these crazy leaders and singing and goofy games and then they'd talk about Jesus and I didn't listen too much. I wasn't interested in God right then. But it was something to do and there was a really cute guy that could play ping pong really well. So I did start going and it made my coach mad. He he hated God. And honestly, <laughs> It felt good to make him mad. That's kind of warped. But uh, I, I enjoyed him not being in control of me anymore. And so my dad, here my atheist father, he said, I think you should go to Young Life Camp this summer, and I'll pay for it. I could not believe it. Wow. It's like, what? Um, it, was, it was odd because usually we had to pay for at least half of anything fun. And that he, he's not even a believer in Christ, and he thought I should go. But he was so impressed with the leaders and what good role models they were, and uh, he thought it would be good for me. 
So I went to camp and heard the gospel for the first time. And so uh, it really seemed too good to be true, honestly. (laughs) Um, But I remember praying up there, wow, if you are real, I want to know you. Please show me you're real. And uh, came back to Arizona, and within a very short time, I'm guessing about two weeks, the swelling in my knees went down, the pain went away, I was completely healed of knee pain, and I began diving again. And in that new, in that year and a half off, the University of Arizona had hired an Olympic diving coach. They had built platforms. He welcomed me on his team with open arms, and God gave me my sport and my dream back and my knees and my body back, and um, it's like here. And I knew it was him. So that was my deliverance. Mm. And then I began diving again and got to go to University of Texas and um, able to win the Pan American Games there, which was pretty awesome memory. And uh, and I did have other a back, a huge back injury at a motorcycle accident one month before Olympic trials and um, lost my Olympic dream. But in that break, a year and a half as well, I decided, well, I might as well go to Young Life Camp and be a, a, uh, you know, work on summer staff. And so I went to a Young Life Camp, and at the pool, I see this young girl who reminded me of myself at 15. I could tell she was suicidal. And I went and sat with her and spent a couple days with her And she was ready to end her life there at camp, Um, had brought drugs. She was a mess. Uh, And I got to be a part of leading her to the Lord. And that completely shifted my perspective on life of what was important. Uh, You know, this was way beyond diving. This uh, gave me a new purpose in life. And um, so I... uh, that year and a half break is what changed my perspective in really what I did that after college and um, and beyond. And I got to help with uh, through Young Life with as a volunteer, as a leader, and for many years have been involved in that ministry. And it's been great because I've gotten to reach out to young kids, teenagers that are wounded. Yeah. So many wounded people you- out there. Do you find that, like you talked about the girl in the swimming pool? Yeah. How did you know that? I mean, obviously God's spirit was at work, and but it, it, was it out of your own pain that you were able to, you know, like is attracted to like or like sees like? It, yeah, I wonder if it was just God kind of giving me that extra knowledge. But looking at her, I don't think most people would have noticed um, but I noticed because I've been in that place, yeah. and she just looked downcast. She looked, um, she was alone. Uh, there was something about her that I could tell that was wrong. That was uh, she was hurting, and so I just went up and talked to her. And it wasn't easy at first. It was a little awkward to make conversation. 
But as I showed more and more interest and started sharing my hurts, uh, she began to open up. And so um, I think it was a combination of God and my own background. Well, I want to, I think we need to take a break right now, but what I would like to be able to do is come back and and hear a little bit about your own journey. I know that uh, you've started the process of even writing a book, Mm -hmm. and and I I would love to hear a little bit about what uh, that has entailed, what that journey has looked like, and and a little bit more about um, the healing that's taken place in your own life in the midst of that, because um, it sounds like uh, there was something that was beginning to happen that was even even able to be spoken into the life of this young mm-hmm. uh, student that you had seen at Young Life. So um, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back uh, with Denise uh, and with Walt, and we'll continue this conversation. Thanks for listening. In an effort to help you help the kids you know and love navigate the difficult landscape of the emerging digital frontier to the glory of God, We've launched a digital kids initiative here at CPYU. Thanks to a generous grant from a company called DAS, you can access our digital kids initiative and a growing number of free resources and downloads by visiting the website at digitalkidsinitiative.com. This is one more way that we're helping you lead your kids to live lives where their faith in God is integrated into the growing amount of time they're spending with social media and technology. Welcome back to Youth Culture Matters. I'm sitting here with Walt Mueller, as always, and then with Denise uh, Gator. Thank you so much for being here. We're having a wonderful conversation. Uh, she's sharing a little bit about her story. Uh, and uh, if you listen to the first part of this podcast, uh, you would have heard that. If not, please make sure you listen. But I know that, Walt, uh, you have a question. Yeah, yeah, I'm intrigued. That, yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't move on until I get these questions answered because I'm sitting here and I'm listening to Denise tell her story. And every time she talks about diving, and and um, by the way, she said she was a world class diver and a diving coach. So now I'm intrigued because I'm terribly scared of heights. <laughs> um, and even if I get to jump into something soft or squishy, it still scares me. So you were talking about platform diving. Yeah. How high? What's the highest you've ever jumped from? Do you, do you... Well, the ten meter platform is about thirty three feet above the water so that's what they do in the olympics yep um and i've done some cliff diving but and i don't really know how high that was but 10 meters is too high plenty high for me (laughs) i did bungee jump at 43 meters though bungee dive yeah just last year (laughs) so wow that was pretty awesome do you when wait when you did when you did that bungee bungee dive, yeah. did you do some of the flips and acrobats? They that actually you... wouldn't let me at this particular one because I hate okay. jumping off platform. You get that elevator feeling in your yeah. belly and you want to pee. I mean, it's awful. I hate that. Yeah. But doing a dive or a flip or a twist, you don't feel that. Yeah. And so I just wanted to do a simple dive <laughs> yeah. off the bungee, you know, and they, they'll let you do a swan dive, like a front dive. And I thought, well, can I do at least an inward dive or a front dive half twist or something? Um, and they said, no, no. I go, well, what happens if I do twist? Oh, well, it'll just pull you back into place. So that was my go ahead that, okay, I'm doing a little twist in there. <laughs> and it was great fun. Do, do you remember the first time you dove off a platform that high? Is there a memory oh. of that? How old were you? 
Well, I did the lower level platforms as an age group diver. So I did the seven and a half meter and the five meter. And I was a pretty strong diver, so I actually could do a higher degree of difficulty dive on those lower levels than the gals who went up top. And so I did very well on those lower levels. I did not really particularly like the 10 meter, and I didn't start working on my full list up there until I was in college. And so, um, yeah, every dive up there for me was frightening. Yeah, that was my next question. <laughs> the, the, you just, the key is don't look down. If you look down, it'll paralyze you. You've got to focus on the task at hand and think about one or two cue words or motions to make that dive successful. And then you just do it. You what, don't what, wait. You just do it. What makes what makes a dive <laughs> off the 10-meter platform successful? Is it the same definition as like, like a plane landing? Anytime it lands, that's successful when you're safe and you can walk away from it. Is that? Well, vertical is nice. Oh, you right. know. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, I can't imagine what horizontal would feel like, but that's got to hurt. Well, and if you don't hold tight, you yeah. can dislocate your shoulder. You can pull your neck really bad. So you, you do have to really hold your body tight yeah. and in the right position or you can get hurt. So wow. we learn to respect the platform. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I dove off of something high one time, Jason. Uh, and it was feet first. It was, uh, Chris would know, the Yakigani River. You know, there's a place called Swimmer's Rock, and then there's a, a place you can dive. And we had our youth group out there. I was in my 30s, and we pulled over. I strategically stayed <laughs> in the raft until the peer pressure started. They saw me back behind the bushes. Get up here and jump. Get up here. And I couldn't resist. I just couldn't. The foolishness of having to cave to the crowd, that's what drove yeah. me. But Denise wanted to do this and over and over and over again. So um, it's just, just I, I'm just trying to imagine yeah. this. It's crazy when you think about it. So when I watch the Olympics, I can reasonably assume that everybody that stands up there, male and female, who's diving from 10 meters is scared. Well, the more you do of it, yeah. you do get a confidence about yeah. it that you can do it. You're not going to get hurt. And the coaches definitely teach you progressions on the lower levels so that you feel confident and that you're, you're ready and able to do it. So yeah. there's a lot of uh, progression before that happens. But wow. the first time you do anything new, I can guarantee you're a little bit, yeah. little bit uptight and scared about it. Oh, yeah, I guarantee so, I'd be first yeah. and tenth. Okay, so time. when was the last time you dove off a 10-meter platform? Oh, that's a kind of a painful memory. Um, it Thanks, was Jason. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was 1980 because I was in the middle of deciding: Am I going to try to be in the Olympic trials on three meter as well as platform? I was trying to perfect uh, perfect my list up there, and I did a three and a quarter and landed flat on my from my ribs down. Thankfully, my face and chest did not get flat on the water, but everything else was completely flat on the water, and I felt like I landed on the cement. And oh, I was wow. so bruised upon bruised. Um, and so I had to be out for two weeks just to get the bruising out of my legs and needed to do that dive again. I did the exact same thing again. 
I just had a takeoff with my head down and it wasn't working and I came out early and that was my last dive up there. <laughs> How okay, sad so that was is your that? last time. I, I, so clearly I, I decided I, I, not to <laughs> pursue it after that. So I, I only asked because I was curious what it would have been like. I, I we out here in Washington in college we used to do a ton of cliff diving. Yeah. And um I go back out now and I take uh, college students and I show them the cliff and we go off it and but every year I go out there I feel like it gets higher and higher and I don't know if it's because yeah. as I get older and older <laughs> it it that's yeah. just what happens if, but yeah. last year was the, the last several years have been kind of like uh, more and more scared to jump so I didn't know if it's the same thing if you were doing platform whenever so. you take a break from platform and go back to it it always seems so much higher than you remember and I took my daughters when they were maybe 10 and 12, um, to University of Texas. And the coach, Matt Scoggins, led us up to the pl- uh, the 10 meter. Hey, you want to see what your mom used to dive off of? <laughs> and we all went up there. And I got up there and went, oh, my gosh, what was I doing? What was I thinking? And also, as you grow up, I think it becomes a little more insane yeah. what we used to do. I think that way. I asked those, I asked those questions about my entire childhood. <laughs> I did enjoy. I, I did enjoy it. I mean that that last dive was kind of a bummer because I did have a lot of enjoyment up there. When you're doing it regularly, it somehow doesn't seem as high. Jason, next time you're in town, we'll we'll uh, have a little uh, podcast activity, and uh, we'll get Chris and Kenton and you and I, and we'll go to a swimming pool and get Denise to. <laughs> Show us how to jump off a platform. You know, now this this is like the second or third podcast activity we've talked about, Walt. Yeah. Because the, the other the other one that I know for sure included Jeremy Affelt throwing fastballs. Right, at us to right. See which one of us? It's might always be able the athletic contest trying to be macho. <laughs> by the way, but by the way, don't come visit. That way, we won't have to do this. Because I, okay. I think I'd say I'll yeah. go last, and I won't go. Yeah, just just it's just beyond. Yeah. I actually, I would actually be all for the platform and just seeing you jump off it. Oh yeah, see, you'd be all for it. <laughs> and for I will me. go first. That's yeah, yeah. That's funny. Hey, let's ask. Uh, let's well, uh, let's play yes. take five with Denise. Do you have some questions? I do. I, right. I do. Now, I, now, I, I, uh, I'll probably include some of the questions we just asked at the take five, just as a, a matter of time. So I think that that's fair. We can include some of those, but I do have a few that I would love to to ask. So, the first one. Uh, and this is based upon something that Walt had shared, but uh, what might be, or who might be the fa- most famous person that uh, you ever went to a dance with? Well, clearly, uh, Greg Luganis was my prom date, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> and he's a fabulous <laughs> dancer, the best dancer I've ever danced with. So was he? Was he not dancing with the stars? <laughs> was he? He needs no. to be. Okay, all right. He totally needs to be. He has not been that I've seen. I hope I haven't missed him, oh, yeah. but he should be. Wow. We're trying to get Kenton on there. So. He did. We got to dance on American Bandstand together um, for six shows. So that was long ago when we were teenagers. Wow. <laughs> Please explain to some of our listening audience that might be a little bit younger, um, American Bandstand. What was <laughs> oh, that? Oh, my gosh. It yeah, was... explain. Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Stop one minute. Kenton, do you know what American Bandstand is? <laughs> I do not. Oh, my oh gosh. there we go. Here we go. We're going to say we'll come back to this in another podcast. Yeah, so explain this, to Kenton. This dance show was on TV. Um, they had a lot of bands in to play fabulous music. 
it went forever. I don't know how many years it was on. Forty years or something. (laughs) And Dick Clark was the the host, and um, they would just have good dancers on it, dancing to these popular groups that would come in, and it was just fun to watch. Um, Will we be able to find this on YouTube? Yeah. What's that now? Wait, Dick Dick Clark was not just responsible for New Year's Eve. No, he actually became famous on American Bandstand, I think. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. It was very popular in my day. Yeah. You know, this was disco time. So, Kenton, have you ever heard of Dick Clark? I uh, I know that name. (laughs) That's his standard answer. That's his standard answer. He only heard about it because. It, it, Mariah Carey brought it up this year. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. All right. So, uh, uh, as a, a diver, spending a lot of time in the pool, um, I've heard some interesting stories around the food that some uh, individuals eat. Um, a favorite food. What was a favorite food that you would go to when you were at the pool? Oh. Well, I had trouble with my eating, so because um, <laughs> I had an eating disorder for eight years, so I wouldn't have eaten at the pool. Honestly, but I know a lot of swimmers who would take like jello. All right, here's something I did as a kid. We would take that packet of jello, which is pure sugar, and just like chug that stuff. It was bizarre, but that's what we did between swimming events. All right, you're connecting with Kenton now. He's over there (laughs) with a big smile on his face. I I think we've all been there at some point. I think if you're a child of the... 70s, 80s, or early 90s. It probably happened at some point. Um, okay, uh, last one. But uh, what what would you say is one of your most favorite uh, diving moments? Oh, Pan American <clears throat> Games. Um, doing my reverse two and a half and nailing it. And uh, oh, it just you know the the. There were only two of us from the United States in that event, Janet Ely and myself, and she was an Olympian, and she was my idol as a kid growing up. She just was the best diver. I loved watching her, and we were the two in that event, and she missed a dive, and I hit the dive, and I beat her by a couple of points, And but we were close friends as well, and it just was a sweet moment, and being on that award stand the national anthem going up. I mean, that was my Olympic moment. It was beautiful. Mm. So um, I think that wow. was it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Jason. That's incredible. That's a, thanks, Denise, yeah, for doing thank that. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Denise Gator. She's telling her story um, and just about childhood and some of the, the difficulties that she encountered many of which are, she's even mentioning more, very common among our kids today. So it's helpful to hear this, but we want to go a step further. How did God bring you out of this? And you've told us a little bit of your conversion story, but now the road to healing. Explain that. Yeah. Um, You know, I had been following Christ and uh, going to church, going to Bible study for about 30 years, and I was growing in the Lord. There was evidence of uh, the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And I was functional and doing well, Um, but something triggered all these traumatic memories from my childhood, from the days of the sexual abuse. And it was so intense that uh, I had to go in for counseling. My husband and I both together went um, 
He went to every appointment with me. And uh, what really took me to counseling was not only were the traumatic memories tormenting me and I couldn't seem to stuff them anymore like I always had in the past, um, my husband would try to comfort me and just touch made my skin crawl. And it was this wave of repulsiveness that just would wash over me. It was horrible. And so I went into counseling to get a give me a quick fix technique to get my skin under control. I can't handle this. And in a marriage, that's just not cool. So the counselor said, um, you know, there's good news and bad news because uh, I had told him my story. And he said, the good news is that recovery is very high. Your chances of recovery is very high. The bad news is, is it's usually kind of a, a long, slow, painful process because you have to go into these memories that are tormenting you and re-experience them. And in that wounded place, cry out to Jesus for healing. And let's just see what he does. And that was probably the last thing in the world I wanted to hear. It was a terrifying thought. Um, but I couldn't continue on with life the way it was going. I was already being tormented by these memories. So I, it took all the courage that I could muster, as well as getting some of my closest friends to pray for me, to have courage to go into these memories. Um, but I decided to do it, and um, I had this dramatic uh, experience over the next three months that brought such deep inner healing that um, my whole entire heart has been transformed. The shame that I didn't even know I was carrying was so heavy, and I didn't know that until it was washed away. Mm. And I felt pure and clean and beautiful for the first time in my life. And he had given me, through this three months, an, a series of visions in my head. It was like interactive imagery that I was a part of. You know, it was like scripture coming to life. And I was a part of it. And uh, he would come into those memories and he would say something like, don't be afraid. You're talking about Jesus now. Yes, I'm yeah. talking about Jesus. Um, and he would say things as he scooped me out of the room where all the sexual abuse had happened. And I was crying out to him, where are you? You know, if I seek you with all my heart, you said I'll find you. Where are you? And at first I couldn't find him. But um, then he just quietly appeared and he scooped me out of that room and he said, it's not your fault. Hmm. It always felt like my fault. And he said, this is not what I intended. Um, and he did some beautiful things like that through these traumatic memories. There were really four traumatic memories that he came into and rescued me out of and did something very special uh, with that changed those memories forever. Instead of being a traumatic memory, it's now a memory of rescue and deliverance. And it is beautiful. It, it is, he redeemed um, every traumatic memory that I've had. 
And so I've started to, you know, after this inner, this three months was over, not only did I want to paint all of these beautiful visions he gave me um, so I wouldn't forget them, but I wanted to tell people because after 30 years of Bible study and being in church, I had no grid for this. I had no idea that he could change my heart like this. Um, and it's like what I knew in my head as being true finally went deep into my innermost being, and it set me free from mm. so many things. A C- couple of questions. One is you mentioned shame. Yes. And uh, right after you mentioned that, you, you made a comment about being you know freed up from that. You didn't know how deep that was. Yeah. I have heard shame as the di- shame differentiated from guilt. Guilt is about what we've done. Shame is about who we are. Would you say that was your understanding and what you were freed from? Or I would say that the what I experience in what I'm calling in my book the holy shower, yeah. <laughs> where Jesus' blood essentially, which looked as white as snow, um, came down and started washing me. And I started feeling pure from the inside out. So it was the shame of the sin that was done to me as a victim. But it also was washing away my sinful responses Mm -hmm. over the years because there was shame in some of that as well. So it took care of it all. And um, it's hard to describe how I felt. I I have felt so different since then. My skin doesn't crawl anymore. <laughs> um, that went away after that experience as well. So, uh, yeah, you're, and what's come out of this now is you know you want to tell people so, and then you you want to you want to retain what happened in your head is you know yes. Jesus came into those things. So you're painting. Yes. And you've never painted before. Never had taken an art class or a drawing class or a painting class in my life. I really didn't have the interest yeah. in it until this experience. And so I did write in a journal everything that was happening along the way because it was very profound to me. And so I took my journal entries and I started writing them into kind of a chapter book. But it was so incomplete without the paint, without the visions in there that I kind of just put it on a shelf. Yeah. And uh, gave up, you know, the idea of it just didn't feel right. And so, um, yeah, there's a whole story behind how I got into painting. Um, and I know people can't see it, but you brought one of your paintings. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I'm just going to say, I'm looking at it going, you never painted before? It's crazy. It's such a God thing because really uh, he gave me these images, but, and it, it didn't happen the first time that I tried. Uh, it was over the years. It took about seven to eight years to begin to really get paintings together that I would be willing to share with people because they needed to be closer to what I saw. I didn't want, you know, I want to honor God. <laughs> and the visions were so beautiful that uh, it's not like I can put a stick figure in, in my book. So yeah. um, I'm just so excited. He gave me the ability and the teaching, and I, he's totally brought that out of me. I never would have known it was there. 
uh, there was a gift. Well, the other side is not just the painting, but the writing. So talk about that. You are writing a book. Yes. And um, so I took that chapter book and inserted these paintings in the book, and it still didn't feel right. And so what I've done now is I started to write some poetry so that um, I set up with some personal thoughts what was happening in my life as a 45-year-old at the time, going to the counselor and what he asked me and things like that. And then I would put the painting of the first vision that he gave me, and in poetry form, I would explain what my thoughts were while I experienced this vision. So it was like being there in the vision um, as I saw it and as I experienced it. So I explained that in poetry. And um, then it moves on into a story, really, of his redeeming love for me um, and how it set me free. And, and what's the title of the book, the working title of it? Now? It's called Rescued yes. Hope for Wounded Hearts. So my hope is that my story would bring hope for other people uh, who are wounded, that they can be healed as well. So... What would you say to uh, there are going to be individuals that are listening that um, either are someone that has been uh, uh, abused, raped, um, or they know someone? I was just just recently at a youth uh, ministry where uh, a large majority of its students did not come from uh, homes where either parent was there. Many had uh, sexual abuse as part of their story. So I guess the question is, because uh, you had even said you didn't recognize it was not your fault. Um, and, and that's something I often hear. And I'm just curious what you would say to the individual that's listening to this that, um, that knows someone or may be someone uh, whose story has this uh, part of it. What might be some things you would say? What might be then some um, uh, advice that you would give? Well... I love to mentor young women <laughs> or women who have been wounded. That's kind of who I'm drawn to. Um, so I try to point them to Jesus because that's the key to inner healing. Um, it's true that what has been done can't necessarily be changed, but he can change our hearts. And so often these stories, you know, you don't know what to do with them. So you stuff them, you sweep them under the rug, and you try to move on, limp on with the rest of the heart you have left. But he, he was sent in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. It says that he was sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to comfort those who are in mourning, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I mean, he, he can transform all of those ugly things, those wounds, what's happened. He can heal them, and he can bring purpose and joy out of those ashes. It, it's a miracle. Mm. Yeah, you know what's neat about this, Jason, is we, we talk a lot about how in our culture today everything's focused on identity, and we we find our identity in all the wrong things. We put our identity in all the wrong things. So 
you know, for kids, it could be athletics or parents in my kids who are involved in athletics and doing well. Or for wounded people, they find their identity in their brokenness. And what you're saying is we find our identity in Christ. Absolutely. And yes. and that just changes everything. And, it does. And boy, I tell you, this is this is real. This is this is so good. I, I have so many questions. I, um, I, I I'm trying to think here. I, I had one, and then you started. You went down the road Sorry. of Isaiah. No, that's fine. <laughs> I wanted to hear that. That was really good. Uh, but I'm thinking now about just trauma. And one of the things you said is is through your painting now, through poetry, through writing, through mentoring, through speaking to people about this, uh, you're verbalizing. I mean, God's taking you through this journey and bringing you around. One of the things we've heard from uh, one of our friends here, Rich Van Pelt, who deals with uh, high schoolers and middle schoolers who have experienced trauma, is he says coming out of it, the best thing we can do is let them talk tell their story and listen yes you know there's this verse i start my book out with um in revelation 12 11 and it's and they overcame him by the blood they're talking about the enemy satan um they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony and so it's like the blood of the lamb, like that holy shower I was talking about, <laughs> that that was a huge turning point in my experience. Um, and then he gave me this, just uh, he compelled me to want to share my story. Who does that? You don't, uh, people don't talk about these stories much unless they've had some kind of dramatic healing, I don't think. But to hear other people who've been healed, it really builds faith that maybe he'll do that for you too. And so talking about it, I think is huge. Mm. Um, And talking about how Jesus can transform the heart and the memories and he will never leave you or forsake you and he loves you unconditionally for who you are, not what you do. Uh, All of those things I think can be encouraging to those folks and being willing to walk alongside them and love them through it um, so a lot of times we reach out to other things for comfort. You know, mine was food. Some people go to alcohol, drugs, cutting, all kinds of things as a symptom of the pain in there. And they don't even really know why they're doing it sometimes. Yeah. But um, it brings a false comfort into their life. And then eventually they become addicted and it can destroy them. Yeah. Can I, I'm going to ask one more question. I know we need to wrap this up, and I don't know, Jason, if you have any other questions, but just for, you know, as a married woman, you talked about David, your husband, David. Mm-hmm. Um, what can, you know, what can uh, a husband do for a, a spouse who's been through this? You know, and I'm sure he's he's got a tender heart, so I know. Yes, he he has walked alongside me through so much. I, I don't think... I mean, he was my rock. He uh, helped really retrain, helped me learn to retrain my thought life. I had a very negative kind of self-abusive, loathing, self-loathing, uh, internal dialogue going in all the time. And he would point out lies and help me uh, take them captive and replace it with truth. So part of it was just gently telling me the truth. Um, loving me through the ugly and um, praying for me. He really did, um, 
he began to learn how to discern when the enemy was really attacking me. And his bold prayers would make it lift. And so we had some some spiritual warfare going on. <laughs> I did in my heart. And my husband, um, he, the word, you know, the sword of the spirit, the yeah. word of God is the most powerful weapon we can use against those things. Whether it's, you know, I had violent images coming into my head or just um, it, several experiences where his bold prayers made a huge difference. And then being willing to um, go to all the counseling appointments with me. I think I cried every night for two years, for the first two years of our marriage. Wow. Because of the eating disorder. And I was a mess. And he had to be, he was willing to walk through that with me. And it eventually lifted because of learning to retrain my thought life and getting my focus and my eyes on Jesus instead of myself and my body and food and sports. And so it was a complete shift in my focus. And um, he really was Jesus with skin on for me and loved me through it. And uh, it has taken a toll in our marriage. You know, it can't help but take somewhat of a toll. But, um, you know, it, we are strong and we're still working through some things. But um, Jesus is the key to keeping us together, you know, and those who pray together stay together. Mm-hmm. And I believe that. <laughs> it's worked for us. Yeah. Oh, I really appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty. Jason, is there anything else you want to ask? or? No, I think the only other... Just because of time, I'm I'm hesitant to ask, but it's an important question to ask, and it's it's uh it goes back to what you shared in the first part of our uh, uh, podcast, which was you noticed that young lady at Young Life, and I just I just wonder um, what it uh, what it was that you saw in her, and we talked a little bit about that, but um, maybe just some some things that uh, those that are listening um who are are either parents or um, youth workers might want to just be uh uh, keeping an eye on uh, watching for uh so either things that they say ways that they act yeah well i i know the young gals that i am drawn to are those who tend to be a little bit withdrawn and a kind of alone. They might even be with people around them, but they're not interacting. Um, Often they look downcast or they look like they have kind of a plastic, they have their guard up, like they have their plastic face on, they look good, but there's something that's amiss. And, um, you know, just to be observant and to watch, and if you have a prompting, I kind of, I take these nudges from the Holy Spirit very seriously, where if I have this feeling something's not quite right, you know, I wanna take an opportunity to go and just, you know, put my arm around them if I know them well enough and just say, are you doing okay? You know, it's just entering into their world. Like I noticed that you're really quiet tonight, Um, just wondered how you were doing. And not just like, oh, fine, not, you know, to not accept that kind of an answer, 
but to try to take it deeper under the surface and say, I'm just, just wondered if you were okay. And, you know, if you'd like to talk about anything, I, I'm here for you. And, uh, or is there anything I can pray for you? Uh, what area, or if you're struggling with anything, I'd love to pray for you. And I don't think I've ever had anyone decline prayer when I've asked in that way. And they often will open up in that way. Or can we have coffee sometime and talk about it a little bit more? Like getting together one-on-one outside any group situation, I do a lot better one-on-one with people. And where it's a safe place, it's okay if they get emotional. Um, and I often share some hurt. If, I, if they give me anything <laughs> to go on, I often will share a little bit of my wounded past and that will bring them out um, a lot more so that they don't feel alone in their whatever it is they're dealing with. Because um, a lot of times you feel like you're the only one that's dealing with this and uh, that no one will ever love you because of what's happened. Uh, so there's a lot of lies going on in the head <laughs> that um, we want to speak truth into, if at all possible. This has been really good, and I, I think, you know, as we finish this out, the, the overarching message that I'm hearing today is that the only Redeemer that there is that brings redemption is Jesus Christ, and not only does he make us new, but he takes our pain and allows us to step into the pain of others yeah. and be, as you said, you know, Jesus with skin, his hands and feet, mm-hmm. and be tools in God's hand to lead people to that same redemption. So yeah, thank we, we want to pass it on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So thank you for, thank you. I, this sounds so weird, but, you know, it's kind of like thank you for suffering the mm. way you did in, in redemptive ways, you know, to let God work in your life like this. And I would go through it all again to experience the intimacy that I have with Jesus now. Wow. Yeah. Yes, that's that's a powerful, powerful statement there. So, well, Denise, uh, the book is that going to be published? Do you know where yes, it's at? In even the if process I, right I now? will probably self-publish, but um, it's in the editing phase, <laughs> and it is getting close. So I don't know how long these. I, I thought it would be done a long time ago, but it just takes a lot longer than it expected. Does. But certainly this year. It will be completed and out. And when that's done, we will put the link up uh, on the podcast page. We'll put some links up as well to some other resources that we think would be helpful to people. And uh, we're, we're grateful, grateful for you and your story and for what God's done in your life. Thanks for sharing it. So Thank you for inviting me. Yes, thanks. My pleasure. Well, Jason, this has been good. And I know this, yes, is, this is helpful for people. It's been helpful for me. And it really makes me think about uh, these issues and just how prevalent they are and how we can step in and, and offer godly responses. So thank you, everyone, for listening in. Thank you, Denise Gator, for joining us. And we'll be uh, with you again on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.